0: Hello and welcome to Asia In Depth. I'm Michelle Fleur-Cruz. The emergence of COVID-19 in Wuhan, China in early 2020 not only sparked a humanitarian disaster, but also exposed major supply chain vulnerabilities for companies based around the world. As the global economy begins to recover, will companies change how and where their key components are made? In this episode, Asia Society Executive Vice President Tom Nagorski sits down with Wendy Cutler, a leading trade expert who serves as vice president of the Asia Society Policy Institute. Cutler provides insight into why supply chains matter and how they're poised to change in a post-pandemic world.
1: Let's start with this subject by by taking something of a step back, uh, back to the beginning of the year, 2020, but before the pandemic really has hit. Uh, and at a time when global supply chains really are working well. Um, talk to us for a moment, just before we get into the nitty-gritty, how does a good, seamless supply chain operate, and, and why is it so important uh, for companies, for consumers, and for the whole global economy, really, that, that they work well?
2: Supply chains are the way companies organize their production. They're driven by their desire to promote cost and efficiency, And as a result, they find suppliers all over the world that can provide inputs on a timely basis that they can put into a finished product and get it to the consumer, whether it be um, someone at a store or an industrial consumer, as quickly as possible. We know when supply chains are working, and that is when we hear nothing about them because they're working the way they should work. Even before COVID, supply chains were beginning to come under stress, largely due to the U.S.-China trade war. But COVID, I think, has brought the vulnerabilities of supply chains into a new light, leading many companies to rethink their current supply chains in a variety of sectors.
1: So it's an interesting point you make. So basically, no news is good news when it comes to, to global supply chains, right? If you don't hear exactly. anything, they're... they're yeah.
2: Exactly. If you, don't, if you don't hear about them, that means you're getting your inputs on time, you're putting them in your finished product, um, and you're getting them to the market on time. And that's, that's success.
1: Right. And so, um, again, before we, we dive into what's really happened this year, for a consumer, we, we don't pay any attention to this, especially when it's no news. But it's hugely beneficial, right? Whether you're buying, you know, well, whatever you're buying, as long as it has, has little global pieces, uh, links in that chain, really, that help bring it to market, right?
2: Right. And, and, you know, these global supply chains have contributed enormously to low consumer prices in the United States. And one of the debates about reshoring and, you know, the drive to bring production back to the United States is going to be that prices on those products will likely go up because costs will go up.
1: Right. Right. Now you've already mentioned China a couple of times. China is well, more often than not, it's in the middle of of any major global economic news or story. Right. Um, But China is, is also more often than not, uh, in the middle of a, any real, you know, complex global supply chain. Can you share a little bit about why, uh, why that has been the case for many years now? What what advantages does China bring to the table that puts it uh, in the middle of, uh, of, of so many of these systems and networks?
2: Well, you're right. I mean, China's really become kind of the central force in so many global supply chains for a range of manufactured products, whether it be electronics or cars or toys or textiles. It has so many advantages compared to other countries, including just the size of the country, um, the the skilled workforce, um, a very efficient and extensive um, infrastructure allowing products to move very quickly within the country and out of the country, um, as well as um, other factors um, that companies take into consideration. Um, including, but this has changed over time, a very low-cost, low-wage workforce. But interestingly enough, as the wages for Chinese workers have gone up, we've seen companies um, over the past 10 years or so move more of their production to Southeast Asia and South Asia, even before the U.S.-China trade war and before COVID. Companies right. are adjusting their supply chains all the time, you know, balancing all of these factors as they strive to be as cost efficient as possible.
1: Got it. So back to, back to the beginning of this year then, Wendy, the, the, the pandemic hits and it hits China first in a big way. And we get a near total shutdown uh, in many areas of that country's manufacturing production and so forth. So what does that do and how quickly does it do it? to these global supply chains?
2: Well, when we talk about global supply chains and COVID, um, I wanna just mention kind of two two different streams of thought. The first is just in manufacturing production in general, and the second would be with respect to medical equipment, supplies, and medicine. Right. So with regard just to manufacturing overall, um, Wuhan, where the virus started, was really um, a central manufacturing hub for China. Um, it, it, companies in Wuhan produced um, automotive parts, produced pharmaceuticals, produced electronics and electronic parts among right. other, um, other products. So and kind was, of a
1: terrible place, you know, I mean, it would have been bad in any city for, from a human standpoint, but from a global supply chain standpoint, really bad, right?
2: Bad. And, and it, hit, it hit production lines very quickly. One of the first companies that felt um, the hit was Hyundai in Korea. Um, Hyundai couldn't get one of the thousands of parts it needed um, for its auto production and actually had to shut down its plant. And this just shows you um, the vulnerabilities that were quickly exposed when a a company is reliant on one source of production for, you know, a key input into their finished product. And Hyundai was not alone. In fact, many auto companies really either had to scale back or actually um, delay production um, until the Chinese inputs could be provided. Um, but by then, COVID was was moving to to the West, to European companies and to US companies. And so it, it became even more complicated.
1: Yeah, and, um, you, and, and, and obviously, I guess, back to the initial point you made about what makes a good, tight global supply chain. <laughs> I guess if, by its nature, if you have a good, tight one, then when a link in that chain again, and here's a big one in Wuhan, right? Let's take your example of the car manufacturers gets interrupted or broken. You can't just suddenly Hyundai, I guess, couldn't just suddenly say, Oh, fine. We'll go get, you know, a whole bunch of that, whatever those parts are in another part of the world. Right. It's, it's a profound thing.
2: Yeah. Because a cost efficient supply chain, you don't want to have, you know, ideally you don't want to have three different manufacturers of the same part because that's just more expensive. But indeed, that's what's going to happen going forward as companies realize their vulnerabilities and recognize that just being cost efficient is not not enough. They also need to diversify and have what are called resilient supply chains. So if their source for an input can no longer get to them quickly, either because of a pandemic or another natural disaster or some political event in that country, um, then they can turn elsewhere and not have to shut down their entire production.
1: Right, right. Now you mentioned briefly, I think, uh, or we're going to a point about medical supplies uh, specifically. Right. I mean, right, it, right. It, and it, so that's it,
2: the t- other area where where supply chains have really come, you know, have come to light in in COVID and have caused a lot of concerns um, because many countries around the world, obviously, to um, deal with the pandemic needed medical equipment, medical supplies, including PPE, and also medicines. And a lot of countries put export restrictions on on these exports, but countries also then realized governments, the US government realized how dependent we were, for example, on China for um, that personal protective equipment and for other medical supplies.
1: Right. So all this is is kind of uh, under the heading, I guess, of the, the, the global supply chain ripple effect as a result of China shutting down. But of course, then, as you've noted, COVID goes global, supply chain, you know, all kinds of links break. And I guess we should point out, right, that there's a lot of products in the world. People may think that, oh, you know, stuff is manufactured in China, some parts there, and then it comes to your country. but I'm no expert here, but I mean, there's a lot of things that we buy and use that have, uh, you know, the supply chain has stops along the way or links in the chain that, that go to multiple countries, right? I mean... Uh,
2: Absolutely. You know, in the old days, would be, you know, China would be country A, we'd be country B, country A would just ship directly to country B. But now, you know, the the initial input from country A could go through five other countries before it comes to... The United States, for example, for final assembly.
1: Right. So again, um, it, it sounds really efficient and cool and great when it's working, but um, uh, this whole year, I guess, uh, in, in well, it's had a lot of other impacts, but uh, it, that's a profound one right there that just, you know, these links have been shown uh, and the fragility of the whole thing has been shown. So let's get to, and you've hinted at this already, how do countries respond and how do companies respond or how are they responding and let's start with countries uh here in the united states as you've said uh i mean there was already a uh uh, i think it's fair to say in the trump administration a push to bring uh you said reshore production to bring more manufacturing back to the united states um and uh and that already was a challenge in some ways uh, to, to global supply chains but uh, it isn't just the United States, right, that is thinking about these things now. How, how have countries, what have they said and what have they planned and what are they doing uh, to respond to this, this, this broken global system?
2: So with respect to the medical sector, what we've seen, and you're right, it's not just the United States. I think Japan, Europe, and other countries have also um, experienced shortages of these key essential medical supplies and medicines during the pandemic this has led them to conclude that they need either they need production in their own countries as well as um, greater stockpiles of this equipment and and you know related products and so many governments now um, we're seeing a trend including in the united states are trying to encourage their companies either to come home to the United States or in the case of Japan, for example, to leave China and go to Southeast Asia. And how are they doing this? Well, it's really um, what we're seeing are are governments providing incentives, um, such as tax breaks, um, such as getting rid of disincentives, um, and also, undertaking other measures to make their countries more attractive investment destinations. But we also, I think, are going to see penalties, um, particularly in the trade area, against companies um, that don't, you know, that don't reshore um, to the United States. And the Trump administration is already talking about this. Um, The president just a couple or a week ago mentioned that he may even try and somehow impose tariffs against companies that don't come back to the United States. Um, And we've also um, announced a policy of not awarding government contracts to companies that don't come back to the United States. We're putting a big premium now on reshoring to the United States I think with respect to other countries, it's not so much about coming back to their country, is about um, coming up with more resilient and more secure and trustworthy supply chains. So if there's another pandemic or another emergency, um, they'll be better prepared.
0: We're going to take a break here to talk about the 2020 Asia Game Changer Awards. In a virtual ceremony on October 22nd, Asia Society will celebrate six extraordinary honorees for their responses to this year's twin challenges, COVID-19 and racially motivated violence. Honorees include global superstars BTS, tennis champion Naomi Osaka, entertainment empresario Mickey Lee, Michelin-starred chef Vikas Khanna, philanthropists Joe and Clara Tsai, and legendary musician Yo-Yo Ma. To learn more and to find out how you can get involved, go to asiasociety.org slash changers. That's asiasociety.org slash gamechangers. And now let's get back to the conversation with Tom Nagorski and Wendy Cutler.
1: So, so before we turn to how companies are, are doing this in, in their own individual ways, is there a distinction drawn by governments? Maybe there isn't, given what you just said in the United States, between industries like medical equipment, which are you know, truly, you know, life-saving, essential, and so you, yeah, you've got to almost like as a national interest, you you had better have some ability to, to you know, produce or get it in another way uh, that that in this case uh, avoids such dependence on China. Is there a distinction between those kinds of products and sectors versus just other consumer goods that are not? by any stretch, life-saving or or as essential as, say, a ventilator or a mask, etc. cetera?
2: Well, governments clearly now are focused um, on the medical sector, but um, in the United States, for example, we've already heard Peter Navarro talking about kind of bringing home bringing home, you know, more production in, in a variety of sectors. Candidate Joe Biden, He's looking um, in his plan of, of build, um, build Back Better, of, kind of doing some kind of study in his first 100 days, a review, to really identify essential and critical sectors where reshoring um, or supply chain adjustments um, will be needed. Um, mentioning perhaps you know, some high tech areas like semiconductors um, or other areas beyond medical. I mean, I right. think the key is we can't bring everything home, right? That's just not going to happen. If you think about even the government expenditures, taxpayer dollars to attract these companies to come home, and then you add on top of it how consumer prices would go up, this would take an enormous toll on our economy at a time when we are um, you know, suffering the economic fallout of COVID. So I think it's critical that we be very strategic and really think through which sectors and which industries we really need to provide those incentives to come back to the United States. And I think working with our allies and partners in developing what are called kind of trusted or secure supply chains offers um, an important alternative to this notion of reshoring.
1: Right. Of course, I, I, not to get too political here, but working with our allies and partners is not usually a phrase heard often in uh, in, in foreign affairs, anyway. With our current administration, we'll just leave it at that. Um, but let, let's go from from national and government responses uh, in terms of what COVID has done uh, to the supply chain, Wendy Cutler, to to how companies are, because of course, it's the whether it's the CEO or the poor person who now has to sit there in a war room somewhere in the United States, let's say, and rethink how, uh, how something is going to uh, get to market and keep their profits and everything else. How are, how are companies dealing with this, especially if they, if China is a link in their global supply chain? I mean, um, and, and how, I guess to use your phrase just then, how do you build in this day and age, a trusted supply chain or a secure supply chain? Can you have such a thing?
2: So at the end of the day, let's just keep in mind, it's really up to individual companies to establish their supply chains. Governments can provide incentives. Government can provide penalties. In some cases, governments can issue laws that that will um, restrict your behavior. But for the most part, it's up to companies. And when companies decide... Um, when they make supply chain decisions and they, they decide, you know, do we want to stay in China? Do we want to leave China? Do we want to come back to the United States? Do we want to expand production in Southeast Asia, for example? There are a lot of considerations that they take into account, including they look at the economic growth rate of these countries. They look at the level of regulations they have. They look at tax rates, They look at the sophistication um, and flexibility and cost of the workforce. They look at infrastructure. So they have a lot of different considerations. um, And um, those considerations have been heightened over the past year with increased tariffs between the US and China, which has really affected a lot of supply chains and really um, hiked the cost um, of of a slew of products coming into the United States from China. And they also, obviously, you know, the COVID experience has um, exposed vulnerabilities. And so, um, companies, as I mentioned at the outset, they're adjusting supply chains all the time. But now they really have some critical decisions to make. And that is do we keep our supply chains the way they are? Do we change them? If so, What's the extent of the change? Do we come back to the United States? Do we expand to other countries? I think one thing, though, is clear. If you look at the recent survey of over 100 companies issued by the US-China Business Council just last month, it's, I think it was over 70 or 80% of US companies in China said they don't have any plans to move out of China. Now, a lot of this is because many of these companies are producing for consumption in China, so they're not in China to kind of export um, inputs into, you know, into a broader supply chain. But that said, China still has enormous advantages over other countries, although certain other countries like Vietnam and others are really trying to um, Implement policies that uh, will attract production from companies that are looking to diversify their supply chains.
1: Right. So you're in the in the war room, or or back to the drawing board, whatever the metaphor is. If you're <clears throat> running a a, a company uh, that that requires one of these chains, and it's not it's really about rebuilding them rather than scrapping them. Right. I mean, although you've mentioned a few times reshoring, but I would imagine with most products, um, I mean, take cars for example, but there are many others, uh, you can't really just bring it all back to within America's borders and expect to get the job done or at least get it done as efficiently and as, 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 uh, uh, at the prices that, that consumers have, have grown to expect, right?
2: Well, you're correct. There's a difference among different industries and sectors. So, for example, in autos, you're not just going to, like, you know, lift an auto plan and move it to Southeast Asia. I think when it comes to autos, when you're thinking about supply chains, a lot of companies are thinking about, you know what, we were going to expand um, our operation and production of a certain model of cars does it make sense to keep doing this in China or should we move to Thailand or to Vietnam um, or Indonesia? So I think the expansion question, um, you know, comes into play. I also think that, you know, autos versus let's say textiles, my understanding on textiles and apparel, it's easier to move um, production um, in that sector to other places basically to pick up and to move. And we've seen that in particular as China has become um, a a higher cost um, country that companies have picked up some of their textiles and apparel operations and have moved to South Asia and Southeast Asia, but including Bangladesh, Myanmar, um, and other destinations. So it varies industry by industry. But what companies will tell you, you know, you just don't pick up a supply chain and move overnight. These are, um, you know, this in some sectors like autos, they could take years. And so they have, a, you know, companies, again, there's so much that they have to consider before making these, um, you know, game changing decisions for their operations.
1: Right. Now, back to where we began and where we are now in terms of China and the pandemic, uh, China's reopening. Uh, Wuhan, uh, which was at the epicenter, or really was the epicenter for a time, Uh, factories are are up and running again. Uh, Consumers seem to be trickling back in some parts of the world and others not. And I guess, um, to your point, I guess about all those companies that are saying in surveys that they may wish to stay in China, um, is it possible that uh, this has been just a blip and that uh, the supply chains that, that had China uh, so central to them can be uh, restored, the trend can be reversed? What do you think?
2: So when I think of supply chains, I think about, you know, on one, I think of a spectrum. On one end of the spectrum is you bring everything back to the United States. The other end of the spectrum is you kind of keep things the way they were, I would say, almost pre-U.S.-China trade war. I don't think either end of the spectrum is really the right. realistic outcome. We'll be we'll we'll end up after COVID somewhere in the middle and the question is, you know, to which side of the spectrum companies will lean and I think that will really depend on um you know the products companies are producing um and really w- where their markets are. You mentioned that China is recovering. That's absolutely true. And according to the IMF predictions, China may be the only kind of major country in the world where they'll experience positive growth this year. So for many companies, they still look at the large and growing market in China. They want to be there and they're willing to incur the cost and the unpredictability and perhaps the overdependence on the Chinese market, thinking that outweighs you know, the cost of moving to um, other destinations.
1: Right, and I said I wasn't gonna get political, Wendy, but uh, h- how significant then would, would uh, Trump's reelection or, 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 or a victory for Joe Biden be in these terms? Uh, I gather you say that they're, but they both have talked about reshoring. But I have to imagine that 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 sort of bring everything uh, into America would be a stronger part of, of a second Trump term, no?
2: Right. I mean, both both campaigns um, are actively talking about reshoring. I think there are two key differences in my mind. Um, Vice President Biden is emphasizing kind of these secure trusted supply chains, working with other allies and partners. And second, it seems, it seems that he's talking about um, you know, a more strategic approach. Let's really think through the critical and essential sectors we should think about encouraging, reshoring, versus sometimes what you hear from President Trump, that he just wants to bring everything back, and if companies don't, you know, don't want to come back, he's going to impose tariffs on them or somehow make their lives miserable.
1: Right, right. So, Wendy Cutler, a couple of last questions here about the long-term effects or impacts of this, uh, this, this breakup or, or whatever you want to call it of, of the global supply chain system as a result of the, of the pandemic. First, to China. And, and how durable do you think China's supply chain advantage is? Uh, you've mentioned, we've talked about them, them, you know, rebounding a little bit, but um, also about a lot of companies that, that want to look elsewhere and sort of de-China their supply chain. Can it be replicated in other countries? You know, um, practically speaking, what happens if a lot of these firms, you know, move to Vietnam or Bangladesh or even Mexico for supply needs that are currently met by China?
2: Again, I think certain companies will move, but many companies won't move. That will depend um, not only on the, the, the culture of the company and the kinds of risks they want to take, but also it will depend on, you know, on the sector and really which, which criteria or conditions they think are the most important for the production um, of their product. I do think, though, even if companies stay in China, many will aim to diversify their supply chains. So if something else happens in China, let's say, like, like what we saw in Wuhan, they, may, they will have alternative um, sources for um, key inputs. I think that is one lesson that companies have learned. Um, they don't wanna shut down complete production lines And are going to have to incur more more costs for that diversification but i think many will think that is well worth it because shutting down a production line means no money's coming in from that line and it means the workers that they need for that production line um you know their jobs are jeopardized and you know the list goes on and on so diversification and resilience is important Um, either, um, even for companies that choose to stay in China because of the advantages that um, China um, provides to them with respect to supply chains.
1: And I take it you'd you'd say that's good news, right? I mean, yeah, it may mean a little more in the way of the prices we pay, but the reduction of those shocks and vulnerabilities, that's, I would assume, good for jobs and good for... Absolutely. I
2: I think many companies... You know, just they—they they got so fixated on efficiency and low costs that they didn't plan for risks. They didn't right. plan. For, they didn't think through their vulnerabilities. And so, um, you know, this is a useful lesson. And frankly, you know, in the world ahead, you know, either through climate change or other pandemics or <laughs> other things, unexpected weather um, occurrences. Um, that I think we can all expect going forward, I think it's important for companies now to, you know, take all that into consideration and to make sure that they've got other sources for supply um, if things, you know, don't go well in one location.
1: Yeah. So I think you've kind of answered this last question, but I'm going to ask it anyway, Wendy, the, uh, on your spectrum, I guess, of, you know, total reshoring and uh, total back to normal. You know, I'm always struck when you and I speak that that free trade, which is what you've spent so much of your, your career uh, working on, and globalization, you know, have sort of become in some corners anyway, dirty words or, or question paradigms and, and and however you want to put it. Um, but I I assume you would say that the global supply chain is not isn't dead yet. Right. I mean, it's not, it's not going away. It's just uh, on your spectrum. It just is, is, is ripe for change. Right.
2: Right. I think we're going to see important adjustments to supply chains, but we're going to see the continuation of globalization and companies using, um, you know, intricate supply chains. Um, but we're not going back to where we were. And in fact, based on many studies, people will say that globalization kind of peaked in 2008 And since that time, you're seeing, you know, you've seen kind of supply chains starting to move out of China, um, you know, starting over 10 years ago. So, again, adjustments will be made and, you know, uh, they can be healthy adjustments in many, many cases. What I worry about, though, is, again, getting back to what we said, that in this push for reshoring and bringing production back to the United States, um, that, that our government, you know, again, doesn't really think through which sectors are critical to have here at home. And it doesn't think through the impact on consumer prices. Um, and, you know, my view is we have a lot of allies and partners around the world that we could work with, um, have our companies move to those countries um, and kind of set up what are called now the, the new jargon, these kind of trusted supply chains, Um, So you don't feel so vulnerable or you don't feel that you have over-reliance on a country that you can't count on.
0: Thank you for listening to Asia In-Depth. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple, Spotify, and YouTube. And check out past episodes by visiting our show page at asiasociety.org slash podcast. A new report by Wendy Cutler titled "Reengaging the Asia Pacific on Trade – a TPP Roadmap for the Next U.S. Administration examines the reasons and options that the next administration would have for re-engaging the CPTPP. It's available for download at asiasociety.org tpp-roadmap. That's asiasociety.org tpp-roadmap. I'm Michelle Flor Cruz. See you next time.